This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at uctv.tv slash careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and those in career transition bridge to better employment. Welcome to our newest segment of Job One. We're pleased to have you here with us, and we've got some really interesting guests that has specializes in counseling CEOs and executives on their careers and how to maximize their careers. So we're going to get some free advice that people pay thousands of dollars for <laughs> today from, from Don Finn. And Don is uh, an employment law expert for over 30 years. We won't talk about how many years. He speaks to Vistage Groups, if you're familiar with that. It's a CEO training group. He spoke to over 400 of those groups and created over 30 training programs to help executives expand and grow and, and uh, learn better skills and, and improve their career. And then is currently a, a career coach and a life coach for CEOs. And Don, welcome to the show. Your specialty is emotional intelligence. So let's start with that and how that affects our careers and success and what we need to learn from you today. All right, very good, and thanks for having me here in the first place. Emotional intelligence, the whole idea of that was first introduced by uh, Harvard professor Daniel Goleman a number of years ago when he wrote a book about it, and he said that your EQ or your emotional quotient is more important to your success in the workplace than your IQ. And we've both seen plenty of smart people, but they don't have the emotional intelligence to be good leaders or to move up in the ranks. They crash and burn early on. Yeah, they do. And so, and if they just rely on technical, 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 and not realize there's a whole relationship side to the workplace, they have some challenges. So one of the things I kid about is we use this, the, the common phraseology today is emotional intelligence, but you can't just solve emotional problems at an intellectual level you want to solve them at an emotional level, too. So I kid around, if you're having an argument with a teenager in the hallway, is there any intelligence going on at that moment? So the, the idea is that we don't just make decisions logically. We make them emotionally and to be attuned to how our emotions come into play when we have decision-making. Which, when you say in emotional intelligence and, and technical... 50-50 of importance? How, how, what would you tell a client to I think it all depends on? on the situation. If you're, I'm dealing with a conflict situation, it's going to be more emotionally related. If I'm, I'm trying to make sure we have the right technology installed, it's going to be more left side of the brain. So when we're, we're doing computational stuff, we're on the left side of the brain. When we're trying to see how we feel about things, we're on the right side of the brain. So if I'm having difficulty with a coworker or a peer or somebody that re reports to me, and is it's typically on emotional issues if they've got the right skills? Yeah, so uh, one of the challenges of any employer, leader, manager, is you want to be able to trust the people you work with. Okay? So what makes you or I trustworthy is, first of all, we have a skill set. And if somebody's not performing, it might just be a lack of skills, and that's something you can test for. You can find out for a fact whether they have the skills or not. And train for it. Yeah, and train for it. The other side of it is somebody's desire. They may have the skills but not want to deploy them or not be motivated to deploy them, and we want to make sure that we're not getting in the way of that emotional desire. Okay? So if we assume that they have the skill sets and we're not getting in the way of it, then there's a... A phrase I like to use and really teach people, if it doesn't make sense, don't try to make sense out of it. 
because you're not going to solve it at some logical level, right? So you're going to try to find out what's going on, what might feel unfair to that person in that situation. We typically think of a, of a supervisor and employees not working well. If I'm an employee and I'm not getting along with my boss, how, how should I approach that? What's, how do I use emotional intelligence? I can do my job. I've got the skills. Mm-hmm. But I'm not performing at my best because of tension or stress or uh, animosity in the workplace. How would I approach my supervisor to talk about our conflict in styles? I think that I would begin by approaching my supervisor and asking them how I can support them. Because if it's all about me, 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 uh, that's going to tune them out really quickly. All right? Because they're obviously most concerned about their needs, right? So, and they want to see how I'm either supporting their needs or I'm not supporting their needs. So the, the person that they manage or supervise that they feel is there to support their needs is the one that you're going to have the best relationship with or want to have the best relationship with or want to mentor or want to promote or want to coach or any of those types of things. So it's that what's, what's in it for me and if I'm having difficulty with somebody, I can't start by saying, what I need from you is this. Uh, I'd rather start by finding out what they need from me. And then hopefully, well, they just say, I just need you to do a better job or have your reports done on time. Or if it's sort of a critical response that I get back, I mean, typically I think people sort of close their book and leave and think, I need to change jobs. I mean, we... Studies show they may, that people, may, they may just might need to change jobs. And they you know? might. I mean, yeah, there's a joke I like to kid around. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb's got to really want to change, right? <laughs> so guess what? Half the bosses out there are better than the other half of the bosses out there. And if you've got a bad boss, that's a dead-end situation, and that's the reality of it. And if you can't turn that relationship around, then you're probably better served looking to see where you can be of, uh, of service. Yeah, we, the statistics show that people quit bosses. Yep, they do. They don't quit companies. Right. And one of the one of the challenges is if I can't get along with this boss, should I go to another department? Should I go to another division of the company? Let's try to stay within the company and get out from under that boss if we're, we have a conflict. But if the boss owns the company or runs it, then... The decision or the boss might be responding to the culture of the very top. So if it's, uh, you know, you, you've seen the articles about Amazon's culture. Now you're seeing things coming out about Google. So if the culture from the very top is that, then all the managers got to act in alignment with that culture or they get booted. So it's, very, it's fear-driven on their part. Yeah. When you're dealing with CEOs that are or, or wannabe CEOs, what, what are the biggest conflicts in their careers? What's holding them back? That, that you work with them on, that we should watch out for as employees and supervisors? The biggest challenge of all with the CEOs is their need to control. Hmm. They're control freaks. And, and so the good news is, you know, I, I ran a business, you run a business, you, you, you want to put things together, you're, you're a driver, you want to be in control, but at a certain point you got to start letting go of control or you become over-controlling, all right? And... When I talk about after my workshops with the CEOs, the chairs of those groups said, it's the biggest issue we always deal with our groups is their need to control too much. So the fear of letting go of control is something's going to go bad. And I've worked too hard and too long and put too much energy into this for that to happen. And it's going to reflect badly on so me can be, if it does. Yeah, and it can be paralyzing. And 
Interestingly, if you drill down a little bit further, um, the fear of, loss, of losing control, uh, most fears are related to somebody's judgment. So if you let go of some control, somebody makes a mistake, whose judgment are you going to concern about that you let them do it? Now, if you're a middle-level manager and you let go of control, let somebody make a mistake, you might be concerned about your boss. All right? If you're the CEO, you might be concerned about stakeholders, uh, you know, the board, um, shareholders, people like that. So I'm always wondering whose judgment is holding you back because when you try to control too much, you find yourself doing $20 an hour work really well. Yeah. And you're a CEO. <laughs> I've literally, I'll never forget a guy that I followed around, uh, ran in, in town here, a uh, very expensive automobile repair facility. He was a multimillionaire from it, living in Rancho Santa Fe, spending way too many hours at work. And his marriage counselor said, I can't help this marriage until you help him. So I said, all right, I'm going to show up with you at work when you get there, 7 o'clock. And he literally opened up these big garage bay doors, you know, so they can start. I said, that's a really interesting skill set you've got there. You think somebody else may be able to do it not as well as you, but somebody else may be able to do it, you know. And with a stronger back. Yeah, and, 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 and so we went through his whole day like this, and I got him to stop doing things, and I got him to stop doing things, and I got him to stop doing things. And he was down to about 35 hours a week from 70. And he got an automobile accident and was laid up in the hospital for like a month and a half. He had his two best months ever. And, well, it was gone. Yeah, it was. Ouch. So, so, but, but he had started the process in place. And so it, it was really interesting. I said, so what did you learn out of all this? And he said, I never realized how smart my people were. Because how can that be the case when you're a control freak? How can you ever know how smart your people are when you're trying to be self-controlling? Yeah, and the, the, the simple phrase, well, just let go, right? Stop doing that. Yep, 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 right? yep, yep. That's like when people are having an argument and somebody says... What, now, just relax, right? And you go, oh, sure, I'm, we're in the middle of the article. That's all I needed to hear was just the word. It just irritates them more. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm watching this and I'm feeling like I'm working too many hours, I'm overload, I'm stressed, how, how do I start doing it myself? If I don't have somebody like you to follow me around all day, what are, what are hints I should look for that I'm doing that I could sort of self-diagnose this situation and remove a lot of stress from myself and probably my team. One thing I've noticed is that a lot of people get caught in the how-to. How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Where the real motivator is the want to. I've noticed that people who want to do something, if people want to spend less time at work, want to be more efficient, want to be less controlling, then they might stumble, but they'll figure out a way. If they're stuck in the how-to without the want-to, they're, just go- they're not going to take any action. And we're either motivated through pain or pleasure, Tony Robbins 101, right? So we're motivated right. either by to- pain or pleasure, with pain being a much greater motivator. Uh, pain pills sell for much more than vitamins. So people aren't in enough pain in the present to change. So what you want to do is say, okay, if I don't change... What's the future result of that? The person who's smoking today isn't in enough pain to stop smoking. But you put them in a hospital bed in an oxygen tent with the family around them and ask them if they like to smoke now, most of them say I'm not interested. Yeah. So we, we've got to take that future pain, see where the road is going, and bring it present to get the leverage on ourselves to change today.
Well, because in your example where um, the fellow was working too hard and putting too much stress on himself, or too many hours. I don't know if he was working hard, but he's working too many hours and it's affecting his marriage. I mean, right? I happened mean, to me. He was almost in divorce court. Yeah, happened to me. Um, to, to catch it. How do we realize we're doing it, right? Because we may not, we don't have a Don Finn to come say, stop, let me follow you around all day. Let me do this. You hate to have the, the smoker go into the hospital to to find the pain. How, how do, as human beings, how do we judge ourselves? How do we use emotional intelligence on ourselves? Well, that goes right to, back to, to if it doesn't make watch sense. For the red flags. If it doesn't make sense, don't try to make sense out of it. So if you're doing things that you know you wouldn't want one of your kids to do. So it's a good example I use. Would you like your children to engage in this habit or this behavior? Do you, would you like them to exhaust themselves at work and ruin their marriages and their health and all that process? So then why are you doing it to yourself, okay? For no logical reason is the answer. And you've got to do this understanding of what's the fear that's causing me to engage in this behavior. And a lot of us don't know who we would be if we weren't working 70 hours a week. So yeah. I, 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 I don't know what I would do with that vacuum that I create. And my identity <laughs> is CEO working 70 hours a week, and that's where I get my self-image and yeah. the public views me that way. So how do I self-adjust that without a tragedy happening that, that One step at a time. So there's a little formula that I use whether we're trying to lead ourselves or lead somebody else, because it really is about leading yourself, right, in that situation. And there's three words that I use. And this is true. We, we've got everybody watching this from people trying to get their first jobs to seasoned executives. And it applies to everybody. And if three words, coax, encourage, and inspire. So let me go through them kind of quickly. When we coax somebody, we think the, the most natural way to learn, I've got a couple of grandkids now, is one step at a time. We just take one step at a time. So we're not going to change in some type of leap unless there's some horrific event. So most of us are going to change one step at a time. We go through change one step at a time. So that takes away this fear that, oh, my God, it's got, I've got to get to here right away. No, you're only going to take one step at a time. And the question that I ask is, what's the first safest step? Well, let me try that and see how it feels. So after I sold the company and I'm beginning to do new things, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to get to where I want to be right away. What's the first safest step for me? Let me try that and see how it feels. And anytime I use that phraseology with somebody, there's no resistance. You're doing a sales job to yourself. You know, if you try to right. sell to somebody an overwhelming situation, they shut down. If you say, no, that could be the big picture, but why don't we try this first safe step and see how it feels? And almost nobody says no to that. Okay, so that's coaxing, all right? What's the first safe step? And many times, education's a great first safe step. So if you want to stop smoking, read some books on stop smoking. You know, if you want to manage your time better, read some books on time management. That's a great first step. Okay. So the second thing is to encourage people. And I'll never forget, I don't know, do you know uh, Gary Levine here in town? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, Gary's just an amazing insurance salesman, one of the top in the United States. And I was at his office one day because I coached and consulted with them. And I said, Gary, we've got to figure out what you do differently than all your other brokers because you outsell them four to one. And so I brought everybody to the table and I asked them a simple question. What's the most important thing you do every day? And after they thought about it, 
as a theme, most of them said, make a plan, work the plan, know the client's need, and satisfy their need, which is good logical stuff, and if you really implement on that, you'll have success. But you wouldn't have Gary's level of success. Okay? And I go to Gary, say to him last, I go, Gary, what's the most important thing you do every day? He goes, that's easy. I make people feel good about themselves. Pretty simple. Is that it? (laughs) How come nobody told me this a long time ago, you know? And I said, okay, Gary, what's the secret to making people feel good about themselves? He goes, that's easy. You find the good in them. (laughs) When you run 75 miles an hour, how much capacity do you have to find the good in other people? Very little. So what, what, what we pay attention to is that which stops us from running for our lives and that grabs our attention, okay? And it's never pretty in that situation. So master, I said, okay, Gary, let's take it one first step, make people feel good about themselves, find the good in them, and then what he does is he takes that energy from when they have it and brings it over to where they need it. So, simple example, somebody's got a high work comp model. He's trying to sell work comp, and work comp to them. Most people would say, you're in a lot of pain, this is costing this, and try to sell through pain. Gary doesn't go there. He goes, how'd you be really good at manufacturing? I did this, this, and this. How long did it take? It took this. Good. If you do what you did there and you bring it over here, you'll have the same success. Just let the flywheel take effect. That's what masters of encouragement do. They take our energy from where we have it and bring it over to where we need it. Okay? The third thing, so we've got coax, encourage, and inspire. And we have inspired people throughout the millennia with stories. Okay? Facts tell, stories sell, right? So we, we inspire through stories. And the story that we want to use is with the one with the end in mind. So as Covey says, you begin with the end in mind. The power of creating this powerful story and bringing it present. So as we've shared... After I quit litigation, I started an environmental nonprofit. It was very nonprofitable. Uh, I ended <laughs> you perfected up, the nonprofit. I, ended, I, I, I had that. I, I didn't realize it was supposed to be a not-for-profit. It was a <laughs> nonprofit. You know, so I ended up going bankrupt, trying to save the world that way. You know, and in my Robin Hood story, I would never read anything about money or how to make money or anything like that. So I said that I finally realized that was a bunch of nonsense. That's a story I told myself about money. And so I said, okay, what's the first safe step? read a lot of books. I've been, anytime I've read a lot of books, I've been able to apply it. I got a law degree doing it, you know. And so I said, all right, I, I am going to become, the end in mind was to be financially successful. And I told myself when I was flat broke that I'm a millionaire in the making. So I brought the future story present. Yeah, or I'm a marathoner in the making. Or, or I'm, I'm an uh, NBA player. When I'm 14 years old, I'm an NBA player in the making. So there's nobody in the NBA today that wasn't an NBA player in the making at 14. So that phrase I use with a lot of people, people looking to start their careers, well, I'm, I'm a great trial lawyer in the making. So we, it, we, that's how we hold ourselves, okay? It's a, who our beingness becomes. I don't say I'm going to become this person when I finally get a million dollars. I have to be this person now in order for me to get the million dollars, okay? So it starts with our yeah. beingness, uh, before our doing this. And, and that's the stories we tell ourselves because most of us tell our stories of fear in the future, bringing that present, and that's known as anxiety. The opposite thing is a positive story, but present, that's inspiration. Yeah. 
Yes, great point. So I, coax, encourage, inspire, which is the essence of leadership. What's more important than that is leaders. I know you're a great leader. That's, I'm sure you do plenty of that. And the CEOs that I've been around that are really good are really good at that. And it's really, you know, I say, Don, taking responsibility for ourselves. Yes. It, it, it's almost to me a, a cop-out when they hire a, a career coach or a life coach to sort of say, cure me. Right? Fix me, yeah. please. Give me guidance, give me hints of things you've been, you've been talking about. Well, we really have to take responsibility ourselves. Yes. When the three great points you just made, we need to write down, we may, need to make sure we're doing that. We're doing it to help other people, to pay it forward because they'll help you grow and, and develop. But we need to internalize it. We need to make it a habit of, of using these points to, to improve our career. Can I share something about the responsibility for a minute? It was really interesting. After I went through the bank, see, I realized I was irresponsible at money. And, and yet I viewed myself as a very responsible person. So I had, a, I had some realization that whether it's with our health, our finances, our relationships, the, the, our careers, we want to be responsible. But how old were you when you were first told you have to be responsible? <laughs> Teenager, right? Probably the worst time you, you, to be told to be responsible. You probably don't have to tell right. somebody who's five to be responsible. I know yeah. what you're talking about. I would think about. driver's license to okay. me would be my sort so, of knee-jerk answer. But, but it's, it, it felt like a controlling thing. It's a parent telling you need to be responsible, so we rebelled against it. And if, I'm to, if I was to try to tell anybody that I coach, you have to be more responsible, they would still rebel against it. Yeah. So when it comes to responsibility, it's not about somebody else telling It's you owning it, you wanting to be responsible. You know, responsibility, if you will. And the other thing about it, especially in the workplace and in managing people or me coaching people, the only place I'm responsible for somebody else is where the law says I am. EEO, safety, those types of things. The only, uh, that's the only place I'm responsible for another adult. Every place else I'm only responsible to another adult. And re- being responsible to somebody means that you put them in a position where they're capable of success. So if I'm coaching somebody, I'm not responsible for them. They're, self, they're an adult. They're self-responsibility. My job as a coach would be responsible to them to coach them in a way that they can obtain their success. And, and we need to remember to put ourselves in situations where we can be successful. That's right. Right? And That's not right. Be responsible to ourselves. <laughs> and, and look back 10 years later and say, why am I still earning what I did 10 years ago or have the same responsibility, the same job? Because you didn't do anything about it, right? right. We've got to take that responsibility. Absolutely. So, Don, thank you very much. Some really good points that we can, we can I all... I enjoy it. It's we can wonderful all to be here. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a, some wonderful points. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll see you at our next segment in a couple of weeks.